We're going to begin today with two readings from two different ethicists. First, a reading from Dietrich Bonhoeffer from his book Ethics. A father acts on behalf of his children by working, providing, intervening, struggling, and suffering for them. In so doing, he really stands in their place. He is not an isolated individual, but incorporates the selves of several people in his own self. Every attempt to live as if he were alone is a denial of the fact that he is actually responsible. He cannot escape the responsibility, which is because he is a father. This reality refutes the fictitious notion that the isolated individual is the agent of all ethical behavior. It is not the isolated individual, but the responsible person who is the proper agent to be considered in ethical reflection. Second, a reading from Noam Chomsky. If you assume that there is no hope, you guarantee that there will be no hope. If you assume that there is an instinct for freedom, that there are opportunities to change things, then there is a possibility that you can contribute to making a better world. Here we are, becoming human. And the goal of all of this is to discover the world so that we can move more healthily through it. And you know, if you've listened to any of the episodes so far, you know that I ain't an expert, but I am trying. I'm constantly trying to learn. And I hope to be able to share that with all of you who dare give up your time to listen. So thank you for being here. Today we are going to pick up our conversation of disagreeing, and we're also going to introduce some concepts that are really important to social ethics. So, you know, today we're going to cover everything from uh, uh, Lawrence Kohlberg's Methods of Moral Reasoning, and we're going to look at three specific approaches of doing so, and we're going to be talking about deontology and consequentialism and utilitarianism and teleology. And those two readings that I snuck in at the beginning, you know, those actually covered a lot of the material that we're going to get into. Uh, so if you're interested, once we're done with this, go back and listen to those again and see if you can figure out which, um, which methods they're utilizing there. But the general idea of both of those is you have a role in the world as it's coming into being, and something's going to influence that. So we need to talk about what that is. And last time we talked about how there's there's six approaches that dictate the kind of argument that you have. And there's problems if you conflate two different kinds together. And the same issue is going to arise here, but this is on a larger ideological scale. So that's where we're going today. And listen, if you're, if you're chugging along with this, um, I could use some help. You know, if you're willing to share something that um, was a positive experience for you during this, please share it. Um, if you're willing to subscribe, um, you know, depending on what platform you're listening on, there's a way to just subscribe right there. Like right now, you can pick up your phone or if you're on a desktop, which I don't know if people still use those, uh, subscribe. That, that would be awesome. Leaving reviews on whatever platform you use. I guess I'd... 
I just appreciate that. Um, it helps me. And, um, the more that this can help affect other people, great. But at the least, I'm going to go on talking and I'm glad you're going on the journey with me. So today let's, uh, figure out why we disagree. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. I want to start with a question. How do you think decisions ought to be made? About anything. You know, you can think about, you know, just regular decisions you make on a daily basis. Um, but we could also think about this in terms of like hot button issues. H- how do you know what is right or what is good? And, you know, really you're going to answer in a way that's going to reveal a category or an approach that's going to help you formulate that, you know, um, that's the you know, facts or value or policy. There's all those ways to approach those different arguments. But what does determines which direction we should go when we're talking about things like gun control or human sexuality or uh, nation state law enforcement or war or economics or whatever category you want? How do you know what is right and good? How, how do you think decisions ought to be made? And there is a distance in our culture between the propensity to have these conversations, which happens all the time, and there's a distance between that and our ability to articulate why we interact with those things the way that we do. And the distance between our propensity and our ability, it verges on the infinite. Today, we're talking about this foundational issue what causes us to think the way that we do. And we're really good at talking about what we think. We're not so good at understanding how we got there. So I want to begin, you know, if you remember last time, we we had those six categories, those six argumentative approaches. And the last one was the meta argument. Uh, What we're talking about today kind of deals with that these larger meta perspectives because when it comes to things like facts and values and policy and all that, how is it that two people you know, can have the same information, the same data or the same value experiences? How can they have that same content and arrive at completely different conclusions? And so I want to address this more meta perspective for why we disagree. And from last episode, in the example I referenced about the community forum and how, you know, how can one group in that setting be so adamant about a solution or a perspective and then someone else is just as adamant about the opposite? Or the other example we used, how can someone be completely convinced that Donald Trump is the worst president ever and someone else thinks that he is the best president ever? Or someone can be absolutely convinced that gun violence should lead to the banning of guns. But there's somebody else equally convinced that guns aren't the problem. And the list goes on indefinitely. And for some of these situations, it can just be that people are working with different information or data, or they're using different approaches to the positions. 
you know, a factual logic-based argument is going to arrive at different conclusions uh, than a value-based or a pathos or experiential argument. Uh, there's different moral authorities that people give credence to that affect the way they arrive at certain decisions. <clears throat> and we'll look at a couple of those. But honestly, there's something else here that can impact these divergent outcomes. Because if someone is using the same approach, right, facts, values, policy, and they're working with the same data, they can still come to different outcomes. So why is that? How does that work? And it's because we're using different methods, which is not the same as an approach or position um, as described last episode. Essentially, the method you use to establish an argument in the first place is like a lens that impacts how you will then interpret the information. It isn't about your approach or even about the content you're discussing. It's about the general perspective that filters the information in a particular way. You know, it's like an operating system mode more than a specific angle you take. And everybody has one. We're all working with various lenses that help us uh, approach information in general. And then from there, yeah, you can go and you can use facts or you can use values or however you want to approach the specific content of the argument. But this is about what dictates the direction we go in the first place. And this is based on what is called the methods of moral reasoning from a man named Lawrence Kohlberg. He was a psychologist and he was expanding on uh, Jean Piaget's moral development theory. Um, and that's for those of you with a psychology background, you can probably make that connection. That was based on the cognitive development of children, and it was about how we decide what's right and wrong. So Lawrence Kohlberg enters into that and expands on it. And when we look at all of what Lawrence uh, Kohlberg came up with, we can break this down into three general categories. Now, I'm going to get detailed for a second. Just ignore me if you don't care about this. Um, there's actually six stages in the, the methods of moral reasoning that uh, Lawrence Goldberg came up with. And it's broken down into three categories, pre-conventional, conventional, and post-conventional. Um, but looking at those, there's some similarities that leads us to one approach, one method. There's uh, a, another similarity that leads us to a second method. And then uh, a final grouping that leads us to a third method. And conveniently, these kind of uh, reflect different ethical perspectives that are agreed upon in general. So that's what we're going to look at. These three general categories, some of their details, these methods. But I want you to consider, as we talk about these, which one are you? And, and maybe you even use some in certain situations and others in other situations. But which, which one do you resonate with? And then I want to end by considering and what happens if two people are arguing about the same thing and they're using different methods. And hopefully you'll see what I think is a big issue and how our culture approaches any of these conversations. So the first method is called rule-based method. Now, Kohlberg classified this uh, in the stages that we would look at pre-conventional and conventional. So in pre-conventional, you have two types. 
And uh, in the conventional, you also have two types. And I would say the rule-based method captures all four of those types. So the rule-based method basically says, how do we make decisions? How do we know what is right? Well, we follow rules. There's a rule, there's a law, and that determines what we do. Sometimes we do this to avoid punishment. So that was Kohlberg's first type in the pre-conventional line of thinking. The other type, though, you know, kind of a step forward would be we follow the rules so that we can gain a reward. That is sometimes how we decide what the right thing to do is. Now, he called it pre-conventional because he didn't really think those were great reasonings. Uh, but you can see how this process actually works. Our ethics are based on rules. Now, the motivation here, if you're just looking at this, this first glimpse is that there can be a positive or negative approach, right? If you're familiar with psychology, this is delving into the realm of uh, classical conditioning. So think, you know, Pavlov's dog and the bell and the meat. But a slightly more nuanced version outside of this conditioning uh, experience, because, you know, Kohlberg would say, that's not a great way to make decisions. Just following the rule, you're just avoiding punishment. You're just trying to get a reward. That's not... It's not good in itself, is it? Or, or there's got to be more to it, at least. Well, a slightly more nuanced version of the rule-based method was Kohlberg's second stage, which he called conventional. And again, in conventional, there's two types. One would be, you know, the reasoning that we follow rules, not just out of uh, pure obedience, but because of social convention. We want to appear correct and acceptable within society, but it's still we make our decisions based on the rules. Another reasoning that we could utilize is that we follow a rule because doing so will bring order. Kohlberg literally called this law and order. Like we do it because it is the best instinct to determine how to act for society. Now, all those aside, and in you know, if you want to get really technical, that last type, law and order, starts taking us to the second method, which, you know, we'll get to soon. What this means, though, is that when we want to determine what the right thing to do is we just look at the rule and we follow it. You know, and we might still need to argue about how a specific rule might need to work in a particular situation, but we are mostly concerned about being obedient to a rule. Now, I hope you're seeing the potential problem here. Because whose rule are we obedient to? We can look at the global mass of civilizations and go, there's a lot of different rules out there, it seems. And thus we enter into the conversation that I mentioned last time about moral authority. In order to have a rule or law, you have to have something that acts as a source for that rule or law and preferably one that's socially accepted as a governing force. So you can see this with the Constitution. America is technically a rule-based society, just like a lot of nation-states, because, you know, well, that, that's the easiest way to control the stabilization of a large group of people. You know, you need general rules. And different people within one of these societies will follow the rules differently to avoid punishment or to gain a reward um, or because... That's just what we do, social convention, or because we actually think those rules and laws are going to be what's best. But you also see this in religious traditions, right? The sacred text of that tradition is what has moral authority. 
And that's the first biggest way that we can determine, you know, what the rules are, um, what we're obedient to. This can also be tradition. Tradition can be a moral authority. And the way that a particular community has lived over time can be a source for what you ought to do and how you ought to be obedient. Now, if uh, Goldberg would kind of say, if you're only following the rules because, you know, you're uh, avoiding punishment or gaining a reward, that doesn't necessarily mean you think the rules are right. They're just convenient or necessary. But when you're trying to decide what the right thing is to do uh, and what ethics should be, you need to have a better argument for that. And this brings us to a field within ethics that is called deontology. Deontology is best understood as acting according to duty. And it's associated with these pre-conventional and conventional methods of reasoning, um, you know, where the way you frame your perspective and arguments is based on what the rules or the codes or the norms are. And the premise here is that there is a source outside of the human person that tells us what to do. And so the source of authority is um, some, some major thing like a deity or a sacred text or a constitution or a governing body or a monarch. There's, there's some outside source that's determining that. And that's how we know that those things are right. So we're not just doing it uh, randomly. We're not just doing what we prefer. We're obedient. We're acting according to duty. That's deontology. And, you know, that conversation of avoiding punishment or gaining reward or adhering to social convention, those still work. But deontology is usually based on uh, the fact that those rules, therefore, are best for society. That's why those rules exist. Essentially, this method, you know, whether you're using the language of deontology, which is pretty specific to ethical philosophy, or if, you know, you're using Kohlberg's pre-conventional or conventional, or you're just saying, you know, rule-based method. Essentially, this is a framework to make living easier. You know, you have a method for approaching the world so that you know what to do and, and you know what to do and you know what to argue from. You're just referring to the rules. You're just referring to established principles. And you're usually assuming that, you know, those principles or rules are generally accepted because they're right. Uh, spoiler alert, they're not generally accepted. But what is right? Well, just look at the rule, the law, the book, etc. You, again, may have to argue for how it needs interpreted or enacted. You see this with religious texts all the time. But at least you have the content clearly decided. Maybe, however, you see some issues with this rule-based approach. And uh, we're going to do a whole episode on deontology because it's fascinating and it's something that a lot of people in our culture at least use. But there is another option here. In, in fact, deontology is usually the most criticized ethical methodology. And so maybe you think, you know, there's got to be another way. That The best way to decide what to do, how things ought to work, it has to be more, you know, less about these just general rules that just exist because they're right. And, you know, who determined that? And uh, there's all these different kinds of rules. That doesn't seem to work. It has to be by looking at various factors and doing what makes the most sense based on those factors. That's how this has got to work, right? Right. 
And if you frame your perspective on things this way, you are using the second method, which is called the greatest good method. What is the decision that brings the most realistic good? Now, key word there is realistic. You know, it's, it's framed as the most realistic good possible. And that's important, which we'll see in a moment. But one of the people I read from at the beginning, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a theologian and pastor, uh, but also one of the, the foremost social ethicists, um, at least of the 20th century. And uh, he's known for participating in a plot to assassinate Hitler. He was caught, he put in prison, eventually he's killed for this. Um, but Bonhoeffer claimed he was functioning within the greatest good method for that decision. What's interesting is Bonhoeffer was also a deontologist. He was a rule-based method person, and he, had, he actually had great reasoning for it, which we'll get to when we do a deontology episode. He didn't believe it was right to kill someone. You can't do it. it it's, it's against the rules. He also knew it was against the law, you know, not, and not just the common law, right? He's, he's saying that the Bible is his moral authority, but he also knew it was against the law. He was a deontologist. He literally felt that he would suffer eternally and be imprisoned for agreeing to be a part of this assassination. But he still decided to go through with it. Why? Because in that situation, he was functioning within the moral reasoning of the greatest good. Now, this, this method is marked by an acknowledgement of compromise, that it might not be the ideal, you know, a person's going to die, that, that's not good. And it might break the rules, you're not supposed to kill people. But this method seeks to bring the most realistic good possible in a certain moment, regardless of the rules. And it's about the most realistic good possible. So for Bonhoeffer, Hitler being eradicated brought more good than Hitler existing. Well, that was his line of reasoning. One way to think about this method um, is that it's relative. And this is where we start getting into some of the problems with this method, which, by the way, all these methods have problems. There's no correct one. There's no, no perfect one, at least. So the situations, if that's what's determining what we're going to decide what to do, the factors of a context, situations are usually subjective. And it's based on a conglomeration of factors and components of that situation, which we don't know all of. So if you think about rule-based and deontology, that's decision-making based on the past, right? Your moral sources of authority are rooted in the past. And that has benefits, you know, like not having to discern the right thing in the heat of a moment, which can be awfully tricky. If you're a deontologist, you get to a difficult situation, you know what to do because you follow the rule. Greatest good is making decisions based on the present as much as possible. And that determines that you're working from your limited perspective, which is also subjective. No, no matter how, uh, how much you're trying to cover all the details, you can't cover all of them. But it's asking, what makes the most sense now? What will bring the most good right now based on what's really happening? And so the moral authority of the greatest good method, it's not tradition. 
And it's certainly not, uh, you know, outsourcing those decisions to some sort of rule book or idea. The moral authority here is experience uh, or reason or both of those together. Because both of those, experience and reason, are based on the person or the people involved. Now, that still does not give us all the information for how you ought to use this method. Because what determines what is good? And you can see where this gets a little dicey. Relativism in general is problematic within within this methodology because relativism can be used however the user sees fit. And I, and I don't want to get into the details of this, uh, but if it's all relative, then can it actually allow someone to argue for or against someone doing something terrible? So if I get to decide what is right for me in my context, well, I can say that, you know, murdering my neighbor that's good because that's what I want. So the problem with the greatest good method is it has to decide how how we determine good if it's not just based on the rules. If it's or if it's saying that sometimes you have to compromise the rules to uh, bring a better good than the rules are capable of. And this is a problem for this theory. So a way that people have broken this down uh, and have tried to give some direction on how to make greatest good decisions is a couple different ethical perspectives. The first, the one that's quite popular, is where you make decisions based on what is the greatest good for everyone, which means you know it might not quite serve an individual's purposes. It's based on everyone or as many people as possible. And this is called utilitarianism. Some folks argue that the Epicureans were actually the, the first utilitarians. You know, they, they argued that decisions should be made based on what, what evades the most pain and, and brings the most good or pleasure or health. Um, but uh, Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, they're the ones who made this popular. And they claim that you could actually measure the results of happiness and societal benefit of particular actions and, and therefore, well, you can figure out what's the best decision to make in the present based on what's going to bring the most good, happiness, etc. to the whole. But the point is that the decision should be made which maximize utility, you know, maximize benefit to the largest number of people. And that's what Bonhoeffer believed he was doing. Now, if you take this approach, the rules are no longer the most important thing. And one of the problems that uh, Bentham had with rules was that the rules claim that they're based on, um, they claim that they're based on truth, but they're not necessarily based on general truth. They're based on moral custom. And what's important then, if there's a societal goal of happiness or goodness or, you know, whatever phrase you want to use there, that can't be outdated. So moral customs and therefore rules, you know, culture changes, world changes. Those aren't applicable anymore. Uh, happiness, we can keep pursuing that and it can continue to adjust and evolve into different contexts because it's simply, it's the greatest good to the greatest extent possible. That's utilitarianism. You're very aware of who will be affected by outcomes of decisions and how they will be affected, and you're constantly running decisions through this filter of greatest utility of society as a whole. And so think about this. 
You know, you're arguing about policies or cultural situations or what kind of food you should buy or, or where you should shop, anything really. You aren't concerned about what the rules say if you're a utilitarian, except how much maybe abiding by the rules or breaking the rules will affect the utility of society. If you're a utilitarian, you're thinking about the present best case scenario for everyone or the most people possible. Now, utilitarianism does have some future tense to it. And, you know, it has to have a goal, good for society. Uh, and this is going to make it blend with our next method. But it's also supposed to be a practical, measurable process for the present. So you're, you're basting off the present and then you're kind of going, all right, so we're saying what's good for everyone. And that's one of the problems. Well, how do you determine what's good? The deontologist got that one covered. We know what's right because that's what the rules say. Uh, where deontology fails is it doesn't adapt to changed context well. You know, there's always an exception to the rule. So utilitarianism is trying to answer that. But utilitarianism is not the only way to interact with the greatest good method. Because, you know, what if the greatest good is not based on society or the whole, what if it's, you know, you're pursuing the greatest good of your tribe or your nation or your family, or maybe you're just pursuing the greatest good of you. And this begins to tap into another form of this method, which is called consequentialism. Consequentialism is an ethical idea that's also highly formed by the present. Though again, an easy critique is that its idea of good has to be directed from somewhere or else it's not good. It's just what you happen to prefer. Essentially, consequentialism says that the consequences determine if something is right or wrong. If the consequences are good, then it is the right decision. If the consequences are bad, it is not the right decision. So things are not right or wrong in themselves, like rules are. Things are good and bad by what they create. And so you could follow a rule and it could have bad consequences. So it's not the right thing anymore. For consequentialists, the ends justify the means. And the biggest thing to point out about consequentialism is that it is highly based on the importance of context and particulars, right? So sometimes this in uh, utilitarianism occasionally can be too, but it's framed as moral particularism that what is good or bad can change depending on the context. You know, there's no general principles that can be applied to every situation. You have to, in each moment, figure out what the best thing to do is. And this could be based on the greatest utility for everyone, utilitarianism, or it could just be uh, what's best for this very specific, right in front of my face context in the moment. It could also just happen to be what you prefer which is a critique of consequentialism, you know. But no matter, you know, which end of the, the, the spectrum you fall on there, it's about the consequences of a situation, right? That's how you determine what you should do. You look at it, you make a decision about how this is going to affect things. Now you know what to do. Which makes this approach really flexible. It's really adaptable. But think about some of the problems with this. You do something now, because of the supposedly good means it is going to produce, 
But how do you know those things are going to happen? All right, the greatest good is a method that is deciding things based on the hypothetical. So let's use Bonhoeffer as an example. The plan with all these people works. Hitler gets assassinated. How do they know that that's actually going to improve the utility in life and have good consequences for the most amount of people? You can't know that. You can have a pretty reasonable expectation, but it's still in the future. It's hypothetical. And that's one thing that this approach gets hit for. We don't know if it's going to produce good results. We can guess. We can assume. We can offer conjectures. We can't know for sure. It's also critiqued because it's difficult to discern in the moment what the right thing and the good thing is to do because time is limited and possibilities are infinite. And usually when people are thrown into difficult decisions, they tend to revert to what is easiest or comfortable or best for themselves. So there's a good chance that in a difficult situation, we're not going to do the good thing. If we had rules that just tell us what to do, we our chances improve. So you can see how this conversation goes back and forth. But this is also why, by the way, let me, let me bring this, this is another ethical venture. A lot of ancient philosophers talk about virtue because virtue was a way to bring about the greatest good or large-scale ideas by creating habits that you practice and perfect over time so when you're in a situation, you're going to be able to do the right thing or the good thing. But if we don't have that intentionality, you know, moral particularism can become quite relative and we just end up doing what we prefer or what's easiest. So figuring out how to use the benefit of the greatest goods flexibility for various contexts while not having it only be the preference of the person in question is a huge, huge part of this conversation. And within Kohlberg's uh, moral uh, methods of moral reasoning, it's at this point that Kohlberg starts talking about people who are post-conventional. And for Kohlberg, the greatest good articulated a form of moral reasoning that he called the social contract. The social contract is all about garnering the most reasonable good, even if it means ignoring or challenging um, a rule. And, you know, Kohlberg is kind of alluding to Enlightenment political philosophers with this title. You've probably heard of the social contract before. And a lot of people began questioning the rules and, you know, authority of the state and monarchs during that time. And in a way, Kohlberg is kind of hinting that the people have to hold up a social contract, not a monarch. And if you take on this lens, you're probably going to be skeptical of rules and laws because your goal is the most reasonable good, which some rules and laws could promote that, but you have to be willing to change things if they don't. Now, one thing that rules provide that this doesn't is a clear standard for what ought to happen. All right, rules might not have been made out of good character, right? If, if let's say they were, they were made by a tyrant, but at least you can't make up the rules for yourself on the spot. Rules are black and white. And while rules can be manipulated and they still need interpreted, the greatest good is completely gray. 
the greatest good has to be made up on the spot. And that leaves a lot of room for it to be manipulated. So you can see between those two methods, there's a lot of debate. But let's look at the last method. The last method is called the teleological method. So if rule-based or deontology is um, based on the past, you know, it's right principles that you need to follow, and if greatest good is based on the present where context and particulars matter, so the outcome is not just about doing what's right, it's about doing what is, what is good, you're making practical decisions based on you know, the factors in front of you. The teleological method is both very different from those, yet it's also kind of similar. And what's interesting about the teleological method is that it can work in conjunction with either of these. Because one problem with both deontology um, or the rule-based and then consequentialism, utilitarianism, and the greatest good method is how do you know what the good thing is? How do you know what is objectively right and true for people? Teleology is a way to try to fill in that gap. So first, I should explain uh, teleology. Um, and if you listen to the podcast, you know I use this framework a lot, um, especially you go back to the series on change, a guide to changing things. Uh, teleology is kind of important in that process for the same reason. It provides sort of a, a destination or an ideal. And for the nerds out there, I don't necessarily mean teleology in the way that Aristotle originally used it in reference to the four causes. And um, biological uh, teleology has kind of been disputed pretty solidly. I'm using teleology in the framework of ethics. And teleology in the framework of ethics is knowing what to do based on ultimate ends or goals, right? There is an aim, there's a purpose for how everything is supposed to be. And that becomes the goal that we ought to seek. And we live in the present based on that future or those goals or those ideals. So this is where this can work quite well with, you know, think about consequentialism or utilitarianism. You figure out current consequences based on these ideal goals for how the world ought to be. It's great. Or, you know, you claim that utility that is best for all society is informed by a teleological premise, now that helps you figure out how to pull off that utility in a certain situation. So these work together. Uh, but even with deontology, deontology, the rules, it's mostly concerned with what is right. Um, well, the, the teleological perspective can help you figure out which rules are going to be the standard and, and the general principles for society. So all of these, you know, if we're honest, they all have their problems because they all kind of have benefits that they should collaborate to some degree. And they all borrow, borrow from each other in that way. Like nobody's a pure deontologist. Even somebody who's an adamant deontologist is probably using some teleology and probably would agree with some exceptions to the rule. So they're kind of a greatest good person too. Uh, but, you know, if deontology is mostly about rules and the greatest good is mostly about, you know, doing the good thing, teleology is concerned with what is right and what is good. 
it says they are interdependent. The right thing to do is based on what the world is intended to look like, you know, which may or may not be properly reflected in rules or principles because somebody might have come up with bad rules or principles. But whatever the world is meant to be like, that is also what is good. So teleology, it derives moral obligations from the ends that are meant to be achieved. And this is where it connects to deontology. You can create moral ethics based on a teleological vision. You can also have those moral ethics based on the teleological vision, have ways to uh, adapt to various situations because you still have this ideal that can be transposed to, you know, that difficult spot you're in right now. You don't know what to do. Now, it should be said, a lot of different types of teleology, right? It's not just one thing. Um, and that's true about all of these. There's a bunch of different kinds of deontology. There's a bunch of different ways to do rule-based. There's different ways to approach utilitarianism or consequentialism or the greatest good. Um, but for the sake of knowing these different methods, you got to understand the teleological method is for the idealist. You know, you're starting out with the big picture goal and then working backwards to the present. And for Kohlberg, this is the final type that also falls under his uh, post-conventional list. And he called this universal ethics. So you live life based on that ideal. And, you know, you might use phrases like become the best version of ourselves to build the best world possible. I wonder where I heard that before. Sort of playing my hand. I'm kind of a teleologist Well, when it comes to ethics. But the point is that the decisions ought to be made based on the telos, based on the goal, based on the ideal. And we should acknowledge that uh, teleology isn't without its own blemishes. Biggest problem, how do you know what the ideal is? What if different people claim different ideals? Or, you know, does some outside source need to give us the ideal just like deontology and now it's kind of rule-based? Or should each individual get to decide on the ideal based on their own context and now it might become relativism? So yeah, teleology. It has a lot of benefits. It doesn't quite shore up things perfectly. But once you've named the ideal, once you do have that, you do have a clear sense of direction, like the ontology, but you are also better able to adapt the best way to apply those ideals in different situations. So technically, if you can figure out a pure ideal, you're going to be fine. You know, following the, those, those rules or doing the greatest good, it's possible now. And we could go on with the positives and the negatives. But the main point of sharing all of this with you was simply to give us language for seeing that our disagreements might not be based on the same methods. So I know I just went through a lot of details and probably bored you. Sorry about that. But which one are you? Which one did you hear the details on and go, yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree with that. Or, or were you kind of a, a mixture of multiple or all three? But if last episode we saw that there are all these different approaches 
that create different types of arguments. And if two people start disagreeing about something, but they're approaching the situation or subject matter with different styles, it ain't going to end well. It's like they're arguing in different languages. But now when we zoom out and we see these larger factors that often determine how we approach life in general, these methods for determining what is right and good, there's a good chance that if we don't know that there are multiple ways to do this, we will just assume that everyone is approaching life the same way. And so, you know, if their argumentation is a little funky, it must be that something is wrong with them. Even though it's just because we've committed to different lenses that lead to specific ways of interpreting and engaging the world. So what's going to happen if someone is arguing about, you know, let's say the death penalty, and they're arguing from a teleological perspective, and someone else is approaching it from the greatest good method, they can have all of the same information and data and still reach different conclusions because they are interpreting the data through a perspective that has different processes than the others. Now, if both parties are using the same method or per last episode, the same approach and type of argument, you know, fact, policy, value, etc., then argue away. Right, get down to the brass tacks of it all, work with the information, come to conclusions, that's great. But if the approach to the information and the method are not the same, the least you can do is acknowledge that both parties aren't on the same page. At best, you can utilize the different perspectives to make even more sense of the issue. But the point, I suppose, in all of this is that if two people have different starting points, that inform what they think is going to be the most helpful way to interact with given information in whatever situation, then it doesn't make sense to try to argue using those different methods. It's like playing a game against someone while you are each playing different games. Either learn the other game from the other person and, and share that method or come to an agreement on which game you're going to play. Right? So the next time you find yourself frustrated that someone just doesn't get it, Maybe consider that they do get it. They are just using different means that naturally take them to different conclusions. Maybe what this is, you know, what people mean when they say, hey, just agree to disagree. They are agreeing that their lens is different. And according to their methods, they are both technically right. So as you enter a disagreement, first, know which method you are using. And by the way, this can change in different circumstances. You don't have to commit to one that will, you know, forever be your life's dynasty. But also be careful that you don't just mix them up. You know, it's a bit tricky to be making a greatest good argument and then switch over to rule base as soon as you get caught in a tricky place. But second, you should start by knowing which method you are using, but you should also know which method someone else is using. And as disagreements continue, because they're gonna be on the same page, that your disagreement might not stem from the content, but the method. And if you want to have an argument on which method you think is best, have at it. At least you will be arguing about the real issue of the disagreement. But if we go on playing a game against someone who is actually playing a completely different game, confusion will win in the end. But that brings me 
to the whole reason these last two episodes existed in the first place, so that we will know what might be causing our disagreements, which means we have to handle one more component, the nature of the most interesting part of being a human, your perspective. What is the perspective? How does it form? And how does it impact these problems we seem to have with other people who also have their own perspectives? And once we do that, then we can finally handle why I think the phrase agree to disagree is rubbish. So we're closer to the relational conflict practice called map making. But for now, hopefully you can see your approaches and you can see your methods. And hopefully it makes a little bit more sense why we disagree. You can find uh, more articles and writings or episodes even um, at tylerkleberger.com. Again, if you're willing to subscribe, if, if you think this content is valuable, um, I hope to just continue be putting out things that can help us be smarter and live better. Please subscribe. And if there's anything in here that you think is worth sharing, I'd really appreciate that. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Um, Instagram as well and honestly I'd love to hear what you all think and if you have questions about myself or the content or just something that you're interested in maybe me going and looking up for you so you don't have to do all the work I'd love to do it so get a hold of me contact me keep exploring keep learning and I'll see you next time